Section 10 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The King's Madness and the First Protectorate of York. Part 2. So matters went on till suddenly Henry recovered his senses at the end of the year, Christmas 1454. The recovery was as sudden and mysterious as the illness had been. Two days after Christmas, the pious king ordered his almoner to ride to Canterbury with a thank-offering. On the 30th, the queen brought his fourteen-months-old son to him. The king asked what his son's name was, and when the queen told him Edward, Henry held up his hands and thanked God. And he said he never knew till that time, nor wist not what was said to him, nor wist not where he had been while he hath been sick till now. The good Bishop Wainfleet of Winchester and the Prior of St. John saw him on January 7th, and when they found him speaking just like his old self, they wept for joy. Henry was a glad man now, for he had recovered his wits fully and had a son to succeed him, and he was in charity with all the world, and so he would all the lords were. Well might he say so, for his recovery was really the occasion of renewed party strife and of sanguinary warfare. The first public step which Henry took was to make certain changes in the government. It was these changes that made York feel that his life was in danger, and that the evils from which the land had suffered before the king's illness were to be renewed. He could not complain because he was no longer protector. That office necessarily and properly came to an end with the recovery of the king, but he was alarmed at the other changes. A speech made by him to his supporters shows his sentiments clearly. It is reported in different words by the chroniclers, Wethamstead and Varon, the former the reports is obviously apocryphal, but they agree so closely in substance that we cannot doubt their sense is authentic. The king complained that Somerset had not merely been released from the tower, but had been restored to the closest intimacy with the king, and that the man who already had lost England, Normandy, and Guienne was now in a position to ruin the whole kingdom. Henry had obtained the release of Somerset on February 7, 1455, and a month later restored him the captaincy of Calais disregarding the appointment of York which had been made during the king's illness to last for seven years. The Earl of Salisbury, another of York's appointments, ceased at the same time to be Chancellor. His place was filled by the Archbishop of Canterbury. John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, was removed from the treasurership, and his place was given to the Queen's favourite, the Earl of Wiltshire. The dispute between York and Somerset was referred to arbitration. A board of peers was to give judgment within two months, and each duke had to enter into a bond for 20,000 marks, 13,333 pounds, six shillings, eight pence, as a pledge that they would accept the peers' award. York had no confidence in the arbitration. This being so, he ought not to have agreed to accept it it is clear he did not act with absolute honesty. Nor, on the other hand, was he treated quite fairly. For though he had held with distinction the greatest office in the kingdom only three months back, 
he now found himself no longer summoned to the council table. The king had lost no time in letting the old clique become his sole advisers. York and his friends were left out. Finally, the king summoned a great council of peers to meet at Leicester. This time, York was summoned, but he feared he was only called for his condemnation. It is stated that at this time, York went into the north and called to himself the earls of Warwick and Salisbury, and made the above-mentioned speech to them. It is not clear where exactly this meeting took place. Varon says it was in the city of York, but that is hardly likely. The earls agreed there was no resource left but arms. So, with a band of retainers and liverymen, they started off on their great adventure. Their forces numbered about 3,000 men. On May 21st, they addressed a memorial to the king, saying that they came to show their faith and allegiance, and begging him not to give confidence to the sinister, malicious, and fraudulent labors of their enemies, but to admit York and the earls to his presence. This was on May 21st, and was sent from Ware in Hertfordshire. It is said that Somerset prevented the memorial ever reaching the king, but whether this is true or not makes no difference, for Henry could not now in honor have considered York's demands, unless the duke would lay down arms and dismiss his unlawful forces. A letter had also been sent to Archbishop Berkshire the day before. This letter, which states that York only took up arms under compulsion, owing to the suspicions of the government towards him, is interesting as a sort of appeal to public opinion, as represented by the highest dignitary of the Church in England, and by the first constitutional adviser of the Crown. But on the 21st, the King with his forces had reached Watford from Westminster. They spent the night at Watford and next day advanced to St. Albans, and took up their position inside the town. The Duke of York, with his men, was in Key Field, just outside the town by the River Vare. The town of St. Albans, although one of the most ancient in England, had never achieved the dignity of the other municipalities. Throughout the 15th century, it was still subordinate to the Abbey and within the jurisdiction of the Lord Abbot. This is probably the reason why it had no walls nor military defences at that time. The monastery of St. Albans would not let the townspeople or Villain gird themselves like other cities with a great wall, lest they should become too independent and filled with the corporate spirit. The monks could expect that under the shadow of this rich and powerful monastery, and hedged round by the sanctity of the Catholic Church, the town would be immune from the troubles of war. But the influence of the monastery could not save the town from being the scene of two sanguinary battles, nor did the presence of the monastery soften for the townspeople the calamities that war brings to peaceful inhabitants. The intimate connection of St. Albans with the Wars of the Roses accounts for the excellence of the information in the register of the Second Abbacy of John Wethamstead, which is one of the chief authorities for this period. The king erected his banner in St. Peter's Street. One estimate gives his forces at 3,000, another at 2,000 and more. The Duke of York also had about 3,000. The entrances to the town were barricaded and held against the Yorkists. So the hostile forces waited from 7 in the morning till 10 o'clock. Another attempt at pacification took place, but broke down on the Duke of York demanding that Somerset should be handed over to him. 
this henry naturally refused to do rather than they shall have any lord here with me at this time i shall this day for their sake and in this quarrel myself live or die the duke of york recognized too that he must submit his demands to the arbitrament of the sword and between eleven and twelve o'clock his forces were led to assault the town but lord clifford defended the main barriers so that york could not effect an entrance it was the young earl of warwick he was now twenty-seven years old who actually turned the defences of the king's side for while york's assault on the barriers was fully occupying the attention of the defenders warwick got his men together in one body and rushed through the gardens between the key inn and the chequer inn which stood in holwell or hollywell street once within the town they gave a great shout a warwick a warwick as a signal for york's men to redouble their attack and keeping close together they set upon lord clifford's men from behind the lancastrians did not stand long for the whole fight was over in half an hour the king's forces cannot have fought very persistently otherwise the struggle would have lasted much longer especially if the defenders had taken to the houses and maintained an irregular warfare from the narrow streets but st albans was not carthage nor jerusalem the inhabitants had no desperate determination to defend their homes to the last to them the fight was an alien struggle between the king with his lords and retainers against some other great lords with their retainers even the forces on either side did not fight with any great determination the rank and file seemed to have very little interest in the struggle when the tide turned against them they turned and fled the killed did not number more than one hundred and twenty only the nobles fought as if some principle was at stake the roll of their dead compared with the total number killed was tremendous the handsome earl of wiltshire it is true fled with thorpe and they left their harness behind them cowardly but the rest stayed till they died or only left the field wounded the duke of somerset was killed fighting for the cause which was his more than the king's the earl of northumberland like so many percys met his death thus in an internecine war lord clifford the defender of the great barricade lost his life there with knights and squires among the wounded were the duke of buckingham struck by an arrow in the face he escaped to the sanctuary of the abbey his son lord stafford struck by an arrow in the hand the earl of dorset so grievously hurt that he had to be carried home in a cart the king himself left all alone by his standard in st peter's street refused to fly in the face of defeat although wounded by an arrow in the neck finally he took refuge in the house of a small tradesman until the duke of york came to him on the yorkist side the losses were few but lord clinton was killed and also sir robert ogle who had led six hundred men from the welsh march and had done good service in fighting his way to the market-place the duke of york's influence on the welsh march had stood him in good stead for the light welsh archers were now probably the best in england and the execution done by bow and arrow explains to a certain extent the small losses on the yorkist side it should be remembered that an earlier richard king richard the second who had declared the house of march the duke of york's house to be his heir had kept a bodyguard of archers from the welsh border who were devoted to him 
The phrase Welsh archers does not necessarily mean simply men of Welsh blood. It comprehended any who came from the turbulent march from Chester, Shrewsbury, and Hereford. Withamstead remarks that the king's men, who were mainly drawn from East Anglia, were of a much softer type. St. Albans was a great victory for the Duke of York. He had risked his fortune on the issue of the day and won. Had he chosen to wait one more day, he would have fought with greater chances of success, although the result would not have been better. For on the day after the battle, the Duke of Norfolk arrived with, it is said, 6,000 men, and the Earl of Shrewsbury, Lord Cromwell, and Sir Thomas Stanley were following with no less than 10,000 men. When the Duke of York came to the king, who was in the house of a small tradesman, he protested that he was a faithful liegeman of the crown, ready to show this with all his men, now or at any time. He congratulated Henry on the removal of the Duke of Somerset, whose death, he said, was a subject of joy to all the people. So he led the king reverently to the royal quarters in the town. And on the morrow, which was Friday, he escorted the king to London, where lodgings were prepared in the palace of the Bishop of London. Henry was kept there till the Feast of Pentecost was passed. A parliament was summoned in the king's name to meet at the earliest opportunity in July. The battle was disastrous to the town of St. Albans itself, for the men who composed a great part of the Yorkist forces, men of the Welsh and North March, looked on the town as their legitimate spoil, the reward that came to them rarely enough for their dangerous trade of war. They betook themselves, therefore, to the horrors of the sack, unchecked by the Duke of York. The abbey itself was only saved from spoliation, says Wethamstead, by the special intervention of St. Alban. But it was owing to the saint, he explains, when the royal forces first came to St. Albans, that the king did not take up his quarters in the monastery, and so the fury of the Yorkists was not drawn to the monks. The dead lay about the streets and open places of the town, and for fear of the Duke of York's anger, no one dared to bury them. But the abbot, John Wethamstead, was moved to pity, hearing especially that the bodies even of the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Northumberland, and the Lord Clifford were still miserably lying in the street. So he boldly rebuked the Duke of York and asked permission to bury them. Richard agreed. The three great lords were buried together in the Lady Chapel of the monastic church. Thus the Yorkist cause was triumphant. The king was virtually a prisoner in London. A parliament was shortly to meet, and it may be surmised that any pressure brought to bear on the electors would not generally be unfavorable to the Yorkist cause. The Duke of Somerset was dead, and his removal was the only thing which York had consistently demanded as the sole condition necessary to bring about peace. Why was it, then, that peace did not ensue? End of Section 10